0: Greetings and salutations, folks, and welcome to another Conversation on Movies. My name is Nick Vrakar, and I'm joined today by Alistair Rivas.
1: How are you guys doing?
0: I hope you are all doing as fantastic as you look, and you all look beautiful today. Today's feature film is Come As You Are, the 2019 release, Mm -hmm. but... Considering this is our second episode, I feel that it's important to kind of introduce ourselves, or at the very least, kind of expand on who we are, what we look for in movies. Uh, Maybe absently, maybe purposefully, what kind of uh, stands out to us. Alistair, please take it away. What would you say is something that you generally look for when you're watching a film?
1: Sure thing. Well, um I would, I'd like to say that when I'm watching movies, I because I came from kind of I come from more of a filmmaking background. I went to Columbia College Chicago, finished up there in 2015, started working at, as a freelance videographer, um, uh, you know, independent filmmaker, uh and then worked at 1104 the rental company and so my approach to film is kind of more technical than I think your usual movie goer I'm looking for lighting setups cinematography camera gear um typically I like to figure find out what uh the production of a movie what went into the production of a movie stunts organization um what kind of industry insider news I can find if they had a hard time producing it, if there were some studio um, trouble, things like that are the things that interest me about a movie. And sometimes a movie, the movie itself might not be great, but the story of how that movie came to be uh, might be great or a shot came to be, uh, might be great. Um, perfect example would be, um, that one shot in, uh, old boy where it's just a, uh, a tracking shot down that hallway. And, uh, it's referenced all the time in film schools and, um, you know, uh, a bunch of, it's like one of those basic things that you need to know. Um,
0: Yep, that hallway fight scene has become quite
1: notorious. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Especially for, I mean, you have stuntmen, then you have cinematographers, cameramen, directors on how to tell a story, and it all becomes uh, part of the visual language. Um you know, and they become cues. They're interesting things on, uh, you know, what to look for in a movie other than just like, oh, was that entertaining? So that's kind of my approach to movies. But Nick, I think you have a different uh, kind of perspective than me. What, what about you? What kind of how do you look at a movie?
0: Uh, before we get into that, uh, I, I just want to ask you a couple of questions in regards to your own take on film. So you like to to focus more on, your focus is on the technical aspects of the thing, but it can also kind of go into the development of the movie. Do you feel this allows you to appreciate a film, not just for what is its finished product, but also for uh, its uh, development? Like, uh, even if its finished product might be just fine. Like, uh, let's say The Hobbit.
1: Oh man, the Hobbit! The
0: Hobbit is a film in where that tries a lot of different technical aspects, such as its usage of forty-eight frames per second in order to better facilitate a three D experience.
1: That glorious forty-eight. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, <laughs> that there's, nobody else picked up on. I mean, there's stuff like that because you have obviously Peter Jackson, known for the epic and um incredibly masterful lord of the rings movie that brought the stories to life and then you have the hobbit <laughs> um
0: or or
1: mm-hmm. uh do you feel this
0: enables you to just appreciate these uh films a little bit more than perhaps like your average moviegoer because you might say you might look at that hallway fight scene in uh inception oh yeah and like a just anybody might see that fight in inception and say wow that was uh it's really cool how they managed to do it but like you'll go the step beyond and you'll say but how do they do it
1: not that it hasn't been done before you know uh not um, yeah um, like clearly with great no money one, they have great uh production yeah no one clearly tapped into kubrick and obviously the greatest movies you know have some Reference to Kubrick or some sort of lineage to call back to to him But it's not that it hadn't been done before we just hadn't seen it in forever Um, and especially to in order to Push the story forward it wasn't used as just a frivolous gimmick It was pushing the story forward and so I think sometimes it's the magician appreciating the trick yeah, you might know how it's done, but damn, was it a hard trick to pull off? And for the average uh, movie-going audience member, I think not knowing how that something like that is done is, I mean, it really adds to that suspension of disbelief and there really is a magic trick happening in front of you. You don't know how it's done, and that's part of the experience of going to the movies or seeing a new movie or seeing a Christopher Nolan movie. It's like, wow, I didn't know someone could do that or how did they do that? And the spectacle, you know, uh, can be appreciated from that angle, but then also from sheer, just like, Oh man, he did something that had been done before, put it in a new package. And, you know, most of us didn't even realize it. That's great filmmaking.
0: Now, do you feel that, um, there was this long era, uh, I would say that this era started with Spider Man one with Tomy McGuire and it carried on well for a good like all the way through like the end of the the Transformers movies, or should I say, like the demise of people's interest in the Transformer
1: movies. Please tell me uh, going to um screaming into the camera while running away. <laughs>
0: um I'm more talking about the development of CG. And I'm thinking about like that hallway fight scene in Inception. And one of the things that makes it special is it's not done with computers or digital effects. They have a physical hallway to fight in. Absolutely. Do you feel that like the technical side of things, um, like your is your own interest increased uh, by the presence of these real things, or is it still maintained by like? How do people manage to combine real and digital while still making it look believable?
1: Well, my stance on it is I think it always, it's always best. Usually you get the best result from a mix of both, a mixed medium. Uh, I think I saw the first, um, for me, the first great use of this was in um, the movie Moon with Sam Rockwell um excellent the, film the prop department directed m-
0: by Duncan Jones
1: Duncan Jones, yes, thank you. um, the prop department made these miniatures of the, the Luna Rover and the base and stuff, and um they filmed those but and miniatures are have a long standing history in cinema, so they've been very well developed, but then the uh v f x team went over all if not or most if not all of it with digital with cgi and it just gave it you know more realistic lighting a little bit more texture um it but you had all the perspective and the scale was there and the material was there you had basically the miniatures added uh, acted as incredibly great reference for the yeah, VFX, they didn't CGI-ers. create these
0: things out of nothing
1: right so they they're grounded in some reality and um i think that's always going to give you kind of the best result that's not to say that cgi or vfx can't be amazing on their own um but also practical People worked really hard and for a long time on practical effects for the first hundred years of filmmaking. I think my favorite movie to point to is John Carpenter's *The Thing*. Um, some of those yep. effects that get is an incredibly crazy
0: uh, effect. Yeah,
1: yeah, absolutely. Um, and if you haven't seen John Carpenter's *The Thing*, I mean, it's got a kind of a slow first act, but after that, you are you are going, man. It's it's a it's a little disappointing
0: that its sequel uh, decided it wanted or should I say the pr- the production of its sequel decided they wanted to have only digital effects.
1: Yeah, I think they were going for before it kind of it was in homage in a sense to say that before we were in the wor- practical world. Now I think they were trying to make like a landmark. Production of we've transitioned to full CGI, so now we can do it all in CGI. The CGI is oh. the oh no, it, it, was, now. it wasn't
0: like that at all. Oh. Uh, it wasn't like that at all. Uh, originally, they had practical effects in the sequel, and uh, there are videos uh, I could send you that show the practical effects in the sequel. But the production t- uh, the producers were like, no uh c g is what pop what's popular now
1: studio heads studio heads i blame studio yep. heads but uh, all that said the story behind the story uh is always very interesting, like i said, how an actor taps into a role, how a production gets made um i um th- i i'm i love how adam savage gets super into his props and even says uh, you know the The makeup of his props and the weathering tell their own story. Um, But that being said, all of that is always in service to the story. And that, that becomes the foundation of. The movie, like, you can't have sweeping shots if the story doesn't call for it. You can't have crazy set pieces um, if the story doesn't call for it. Well, and I you
0: see, uh, Michael Bay would disagree with that. You can have sweeping <laughs> shots whenever you want.
1: Um. Damn, you are right. But, that is an epic <laughs> bagel that Michael Bay shot. Like, he'll make a morning bagel look good.
0: But... As you're saying, uh you're like you have so much of an interest in the story behind the story. um I know my own interest in film leans towards the story itself, the narrative the uh the plot that drives the film um, and my own interest is largely based around my own interest towards becoming a writer myself. uh I do not have the working experience, I suppose. Although, what does an unpublished writer consider working experience other than writing and not being published? Uh, I did go for a master's in creative writing fiction, uh, completed that. That's generally where my focus tends to lie. I did largely not realize because, you were um, a
1: master of writing. Kudos.
0: I am no longer the student. I have become the master. <laughs> um, but like you can consider one one of the reasons why I tend to lean this way, especially when watching movies, TV show, whatever, um, is you could have the greatest actors, but give them terrible material, uh, and it doesn't matter what's going on. Like uh, Patrick Stewart isn't going to elevate the uh, material of Emoji movie above where it is. Uh, Halle Berry is not going to take her Academy Award winning uh, winner for uh, Best Actress and make Catwoman into a decent film. Like, these things at their core, their, their storyline, their dialogue, their written word are just so bad that you could replace the actor you, but still maintain the low quality. Like I feel like Halle Berry especially gets a lot of flack when Catwoman came out. Like they were like, "Oh, she was uh, she was terrible in that role." But who would have done better?
1: Patrick Stewart, I think Patrick Stewart would have done better. <laughs> Engage. <laughs> Engage number one. Which I do think he elevated the emoji movie, and in fact, I think he elevated poop.
0: Uh. Who is not the same now that <laughs> Patrick Stewart has played with it. Played with that role, so to speak. But I'm um, but also kind of consider some of the best, the best performances. Um, how many of those performances would you say are entirely based on the actor in that specific place and time? And how much of that would you say is the material that the actor also used? Like, if you swap them out with another actor, would you still maintain that quality of performance?
1: I definitely think that when you have a script that knows its motivations, knows its character's motivations, where it's going and considers the audience, um, it has a higher chance of not only succeeding but of bringing out great performances from actors.
0: True, although this is a, this is something that I'm presenting that I feel is very difficult to actually uh analyze. The best I can you can probably say is like if you uh examine like shot for shot remakes, <laughs> which there aren't quite that many of and for good reason.
1: But no. there aren't
0: too too many uh movies that have people playing the same roles
1: well let's take something like um let's take something like maybe inglorious bastards um uh, you could say a lot of people say it was quentin tarantino and i believe quentin tarantino says this. a lot of people say it's quentin tarantino's masterpiece maybe in in line with um uh kill bill but that movie is well written. Obviously, the dialogue being a Tarantino is immaculate. Um, the scenes, the composition, the um character conflicts, the way they characters interact with each other, the way tension builds all of that is taken into account when you when when Tarantino writes this and so you know maybe f- the actor doesn't quite know what they're shooting on that day or 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 in what context at the end of the day the product that the audience sees is a coherent well-structured well-built well-motivated story whereas if you have something like i guess everybody's favorite uh crappy movie the room you have <laughs> i mean unconnected oh, tissues oh hi mark yeah uh, you have unconnected tissues of story you know not every scene is motivated or even has a real conclusion or resolution i guess you should you you could say um Right? Like, what do you think about the, the difference with those two movies? What stands out to you?
0: Well, um, although I, I think uh, you bring an interesting point in regards to comparing those two movies, considering these are both creations of its own single author. Uh, Inglorious Bastards is uh, just as much a Tarantino film as The Room is a Tommy Wiseau film.
1: And I guess by that Um, you mean wholly original,
0: not necessarily. Yeah, wholly original, but also like belonging to that individual author, that original auteur. Um, But like you can kind of see that, like uh, Tommy Wiseau focuses more on the raw emotion, like he wants Mm -hmm. that raw emotion conveyed on film, Mm -hmm. whereas Tarantino is not just looking like you said, he's looking at every facet of the production, whereas Tommy Wiseau is simply looking at just the emotion that is being displayed. Although, I feel as though your point in regards to Tarantino looking at every facet of the production, um, even though I tend to lean towards looking at the stories that are being told, even though you might take a, tend to look at the technical side of things, um, all of these things combined are what, what is required to create cinema
1: ah yes cinema i i uh i agree with you there because you're right i think it does take more than just a good story because if you have a good story and yet bad actors let's say or a good story and actually something that a lot of people say is um sound is 60 percent of a film um Bad audio. Oh, uh could there's a um, story.
0: There there's a YouTube video uh where it shows um it takes uh the last scene of E. T. and just and removes the uh John Williams score.
1: <laughs>
0: and and adds in like the isolated sound effects and it's just like that scene is pretty much held together by the music.
1: Yeah. So it takes it takes a lot to to definitely make an impact uh, on your audience. And with that, I'm wondering, so you're a, a, a narrative-focused, I guess we'll call you a critic, if we will, in the second episode. I guess we're <laughs> declaring ourselves critics now. Um, so uh, Everybody is a critic. <laughs> so what would you consider... Um, I guess what, and my question is, what is your favorite movie? Or what is a movie that holds the highest standard of story in your eyes?
0: So I don't really know if... like, I feel it's almost impossible to come up with like a favorite anything these days. But there is a series of movies that I've spent a lot of time recently thinking about. Uh, not just considering like what made the original so good good, and what made the sequels so bad um, was The Matrix. And I feel as Ooh. though The Matrix as a story is perfect. It does everything it needs to do. There is no wasted moment. Like, back in the day, you can probably critique it for the whoa uh, of Keanu <laughs> Reeves. But also, you can almost you could argue that that sort of thing is part of the presentation, uh, part of the presentation of it being an action movie from uh, the early aughts. Was it the early aughts or the late nineties? It was. Have I, I become think it was
1: old? Literally, nineteen ninety nine. That was nineteen
0: ninety nine. Like an action movie from nineteen ninety nine with Keanu Reeves is going to have Keanu Reeves saying, "Whoa." Uh I know Kung Fu. It's what if the You're wanted. me and I'm me. What number am I? No, that's a different movie. <laughs> um But like the Matrix for me is a fantastic story. Uh that builds its themes, that uh builds its characters, um everything is meaningful.
1: Yeah, you're right.
0: But for you, uh what would you say is something that you feel is uh an example of a movie that is technically uh, proficient.
1: Well, for me, Nicholas, the movie that exemplifies the most uh, cinema would be... Cinema. Uh, The cinema would be Paul Thomas Anderson's 2012 film, The Master. That's right. And I've gotten a lot of... Not
0: Ridley Scott's Master and Commander (laughs) from the
1: far side of the world? Uh, You know, I hear that's a really good movie, though. Haven't seen it. Sorry. You haven't seen it? Haven't seen it. It's actually not bad. I know, yeah. I kind of want to just, you know, miss the window, didn't see it. But uh, no, no. Paul Thomas Anderson's... It
0: sailed right by?
1: (laughs) Paul Thomas Anderson's The Master is... My all time favorite movie with Joaquin Phoenix and Philip Seymour Hoffman. You have a younger Remy Malik and that one guy whose name I can't remember that looks like Philip Seymour Hoffman. <laughs> um, but. Yes, um,
0: that's actually his name. Mm-hmm. Uh, he had to have it legally changed to the one guy who looks like Philip
1: Seymour Hoffman. And. For me, the thing about this movie, oh, and of course, how can I forget Amy Adams, the beautiful Amy Adams, Um, Jesse Plemons is his name, Jesse Plemons. Um, But that movie shot, I think, 60% on 70mm IMAX film, Um, is beautiful, Uh, has incredible performances by Joaquin Phoenix by Philip Seymour Hoffman. Um, It's visceral. I find it incredibly visceral. Um, And it almost has kind of no point, which is what most people's qualm tends to be with it, which is what I find most people have a hard time dealing with, is that it's... I mean, like what was it about? Yeah, I mean I see people are praising Cohen Brothers movies left and right, but you know, you show them the master and they're like, oh, what was it about? You know? Um, not that I don't like the Cohen Brothers, but it's it's just one of these things where you meet someone, a character, Freddie Quell, Walking Phoenix's character, and he essentially meets his exact opposite, Philip Seymour Hoffman's character, um, whose name right now escapes me. Um, and they... It's basically a story... Uh, Lancaster Dodd. Lancaster dot. that's right. That's the most ridiculous name ever. Um, but he... Eh. Uh, to me, it's basically a story uh, of the... Is it the id and the ego? You know? Uh, or the ego and the super id something like that it's i I think it's the id and the ego the carnal nature of freddie quell and lancaster dodd trying to suppress the animalistic um carnal needs of man for um a better tomorrow you know trying to be more civilized and basically, you see the debauchery of this one character, Walking um, Phoenix's character, in what m- a lot of society thinks is like kind of the, the leave-it-to-beaver perfect era, you know, the 50s, 60s. But the movie starts off with a whole bunch of sailors. It, well, the movie starts off... With tumultuous waters, all right, my one of my favorite opening shots of all time, and it just shows that nostalgia ain't what it used to be, you know it's like you think of the the times this old of old man she yeah, ain't what she used to be you think of the times of old of the sixties and fifties. Um, as like the good old days, but you have this guy coming back from war. He has PTSD. He's an addict. He goes to the party. He's looking for sex. He wants alcohol. And then he finds this, I hesitate to call it a cult, but there are some, um, what is it? H.P. Lovecraft type not H.P. Lovecraft. Who is the Scientologist guy? Um, um Well, before you get into too deep books, right, summarizing
0: right. the entire movie.
1: Go see the Master. Like it's amazing. Incredibly go see the visceral. Master. It is a, doesn't necessarily have a I can't solid guarantee you'll like ending. it. But,
0: but it is a very well-made movie. And both Beautiful. Philip Seymour Hoffman and Joaquin Phoenix were excellent.
1: You are right to stop me because I could talk about that movie all day. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Especially since we have other subjects to talk about. So That's Daz, right. you have an idea on how to save theaters.
1: Oh my goodness, Nicholas! Have you heard of my idea to save the movie theaters? Because I don't know if you've oh noticed. Oh my God!
0: I have heard of your idea, oh, okay. but I, I don't, don't know any to of the talk specifics. About it then. <laughs> yep. We'll just uh, dust it off in the bin. Move on to the next topic.
1: Uh, But listen, I got this idea to save the movie theaters. You know how there's this global pandemic going around? Well, absolutely not, but because (laughs) I live under a rock. (laughs) Well, get off out that rock and don't go to the movie theaters because there's a pandemic. So,
0: (laughs) Also, I probably can't anyway because they're all closed.
1: Yeah, all yeah. Most movie theaters are still closed. Um, I think they. I mean, a few are open, but so this is this. So this is my uh, this is my pitch here. Mo- all right, throw your pitch. Movie theaters should not only be playing the newest releases, but they should dedicate about four or so screens to the equivalent of a streaming service. I know it's crazy. Hear me out. Don't you wouldn't wouldn't you want to go to a movie theater with a huge screen and an incredible sound system just to watch um, Shit's Creek, let's say, and they have, you know, Four episodes in a row, and then you can just you know, go outside, leave, or you can see a few episodes of The Office at a lunchtime and then go back to work. Would you go to a theater if there was, um, they have the bar outside, whatever restaurant they have nearby, and then you pop in and you go see an episode of Planet Earth in the big screen? And then you can leave. That's what I'm thinking. I'm thinking that movie theaters should have a little bit more flexible of a screening schedule. Some friendlier content and possibly some older movies as well. So instead of just showing the newest movies every weekend and trying to make their revenue off that, they have more of a rotating schedule where... In two screens, they show, you know, blocks of television shows on these huge screens and great, great surround sound. Um, and on two other screens, they show older movies, um, movies from a few years ago, classic movies. And on at least one of each of those screens, you'll have a... um you know, a, a, a room where you can use your phone, you can take texts, you can, you know, be a little bit more interactive and chatty. On the other screen, you will be in the other theater, you'll be just a little bit more quiet, paying a little bit more attention, a little less disturbed, and then you can have people hanging out, kids hanging out outside, people with money rotating through the door, and you don't have to have a two-hour wait um, for the next for the next viewing and all that. I mean, what, what would you think if you could watch some of your favorite shows on the big screen?
0: Um, I suppose there, there is the, the convenience of watching them at home, though. I would agree that theaters have to think about what it needs, what it means to diversify, uh, just having, just trying to chase the latest, um, big screen releases is going to be tough, especially considering that Warner Brothers has already announced that they are going to be releasing all of their 2021 films, both on in theaters and on HBO Max.
1: Which I think is a smart move, considering the times. It is a very smart move for Warner Brothers. Um,
0: unfortunately, it's not quite that kind to theaters, but unfortunately, um, that would be like if there was a sugar-based virus that went everywhere and you owned a candy company. Like, it's not your fault. It's not the people's fault. But unfortunately, you're screwed.
1: Yeah. Um, But at the same time, the thing is that people just like the comfort of their home. And so you need a reason to bring them away from that comfort. Theaters are very well-equipped. So equipped. what can you
0: do to draw people over?
1: Well, theaters are very well-equipped with high-end equipment. You know, uh, I, I I think a good chunk of people have 4K TVs, but not everyone has a 4K TV. I think now is about the time that um, I think we're going to see a big shift to 4K, but when... Even though that might be well, happening, also, people don't pay attention to their audio setup so the audio that's might not what I was going
0: good. to say like uh, so people might have that high uh, resolution television that high resolution television as they are known um, but they might not have like an audio setup I don't have an audio setup I, my, my audio setup is not fancy at all so the actu- like um, what is a movie that you think is best viewed in theaters
1: well actually you know we did just have on our first podcast if you didn't check that out go check that out we talked about christopher nolan's tenant and how that movie was uh heavily sound mixed um the um yeah the sound mixing sound effects and um all of those things were incredibly prevalent. Maybe not the best use of sound mixing. Um, you know that's debatable, and you you should check out the first episode to see what me and Nick thought of it. But you're not going to get that experience at home. That was intense. But it's also in a kind of
0: it's also kind of an example of like a movie that uh, is made by somebody who is especially uh, catering to theaters. Uh, but let like let's say you consider your. Uh, Your horror movies. What would be like a better situation to watch a horror film or as you were talking about in regards to streaming like a horror TV show? uh, Is it at home with your lights on, your computer right next to you, your dog, your uh, phone, or is it in the darkness of a theater?
1: Well, you once again have the cozy factor to compete with you do have your blanket you got your bed your couch you know your dog your loved one that you can cuddle up with but you don't have that 5.1 dolby digital surround sound with like the 16 foot wide screen that completely immerses you theaters have lean back seats you know some of them got those nice seats um some of them even have that rumble so uh maybe theaters start allowing you to bring a blanket maybe your girl's got a really big purse that she can put a blanket in you know bring it for both of you um amc and chill amc and chill baby see there you you go. give you some rumble for your tumble oh see you should work in their marketing (laughs) campaign because that I'm (laughs) i'm already buying my tickets Um, But I think actually something that people would want to um, watch recently, I've been watching horror movies or horror uh, just content. Uh, Ratchet uh, was a good one. And then I think. I heard
0: good things about that with Sarah Paulson.
1: Sarah Paulson, uh, Ryan Murphy, obviously a great team trying to move on from um, American Horror Story and I think doing a great job. Another one that I think has been catching people's eye is The Haunting of Hill House, which I haven't had a chance to catch yet, but I hear is very good. Have you seen it? I have
0: seen it. I have seen all of it. And it is very good. Um, I actually just uh, wrapped up watching the first... I guess it's the first season, but like the director, uh, Michael Flanagan... Uh, the creator Michael Flanagan, he's gone on to do uh, *Haunting of Bly Manor*, I believe. Um, well, so it's not necessarily a second season as much as it's like a spin-off anthology type thing. But the first season is incredible.
1: I hear and you a should watch summary it. coming on.
0: Well, you see, it's uh, it's about ennui. It's about cinema. It's about, um, but but I think what what I'd like to talk about is not necessarily a summary of the TV show itself. Uh, What I would like to talk about is, so Haunting of Hill House is based on a novel by Shirley Jackson. It is not the first time that anybody has tried to adapt said novel. Um, There have been three, two, uh, two more that I know of. There's The Haunting from, I think, the 60s. I've not seen that version. Uh, There's the other movie, also called The Haunting, from the 90s, which starred Owen Wilson. Uh, Liam Neeson was in that one.
1: Did you see that one?
0: I did see that
1: one. Yeah, The Haunting. And uh, I just remember that there was a fireplace scene where it might have been Owen Wilson gets... Basically uh, decapitated by this huge lion head that comes swooping in. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was pretty Oh, cool. yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. It, it, it like, <laughs> like swings in on, like, this... But that's uh something... That is, I feel, something that can be talked about for a very lengthy period of time. The entire idea of what it means to adapt something. But it is because of the nature of like, this TV show not necessarily sticking to the original material. Like, uh, it features character Mm. names, it features the house, Mm. but uh, it takes a lot of liberties with the storyline. And in so doing, what it creates uh, is something that resembles more of a Stephen King story than necessarily what it might have originally been. And that is something that I feel is interesting because so when it comes to movies, there are generally is a wave of films that are like each other. When The Ring came out, there was a huge wave of uh, American movies wanting to bring over that Japanese feel. When um, Halloween came out, there were slashers. When Paranormal Activity came out, there were found footage films. Even M. Night Shyamalan has a found footage film. But when It came out and made lots of money, it Mm -hmm. it kind of garnered more attention for Stephen King, more specifically. But it hasn't really brought about a wave of Stephen King alikes, and I feel as though. House, uh, I keep saying it wrong, Haunting of Hill House is one of those things that it's, it is something that actually is uh, a like to Stephen King. And I, I don't want to get too deep into the summary and, or into the spoilers, for that matter. Right. Um, but watching Haunting of Hill House, the third episode is what really kind of drove it home for me, that there's, a, like, there's these Stephen King-esque characters there is a character. Who, there are characters with supernatural abilities that are never quite explained. Uh, the house is resembles more like the House of the Shining. Uh, you have the kids who come back to the house, almost like it. You have a character who has to count to a certain amount in order to maintain his grip on reality. You have a character Mm. who has a connection to somebody else. You have a character who has the ability to detect things um, by some sort of like a psychic means via empathy. Mm. And I feel as though all of those things are very much in line with Stephen King. And I am going to read to you. Oh. I'm going to read to you a quote from Stephen King. I'm ready. Uh, that he wrote for an article in uh, Entertainment Weekly. He wrote Big movies demand big explanations, which are usually tiresome, and big backstories, which are usually cumbersome. If a studio is going to spend 80 or 100 million in the hopes of making 300 or 400 million more, they feel a need to shove what it all means down the audience's throat. Is there a serial killer? Then his mommy didn't love him. Insert flashback. A monster from outer space? Its planet exploded, of course, and the poor misunderstood thing probably needs a juicy earth woman to make sexy with. But nightmares exist outside of logic, and there is little fun to be had in explanations. They're antithetical to the poetry of fear. Wow. And I feel as... there's like a lot of things that aren't, like like that's what makes, uh, haunting of Hill House so much a Stephen King story, is it worries less about explaining what is going on, or should I say why things happen, as much as it introduces things and it, builds off of the existence of like those empathy psychic abilities and says, well, if this person has this ability. What does that mean for them as a character?
1: And I I feel like after you said it, 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 I mean, it really articulates kind of, I mean, he's right in terms of like, yeah, you could explain where this came from or why it happened or this or that, but is that really horror or, you know, really horror is like, why is this happening? I have no idea why this is happening to me. Where did it come from? You know, how did it get here? What's it doing? And what, you know, it's the unknown that's really, that really scares us.
0: And earlier today, you were talking about the thing. Like, even by the end of the movie, you still have only a vague idea of what the thing actually is. You've got some means of figuring out who is infected by it. Uh, or who's, uh, actually this creature living amongst you, but that doesn't necessarily mean you have necessarily that understanding of what it is, uh, versus say like the alien movies. By the time you get to alien versus predator, you know, everything you need to know about them.
1: Yeah. Yep. There are no mysteries. Is it, would you consider it an homage or a ripoff of Stephen King?
0: I would say it's more of an homage. Like, if it was a ripoff, then you would have, like, exact shots.
1: So would you say there's heart in the story, then? Is that why it's an homage?
0: I would say there's more heart than hijinks within this uh, interpretation of the inspiration of what is a
1: Stephen King story. So, would you recommend watching it?
0: Of course. I would recommend it to everyone, except for maybe children, except for maybe young adults Had and you the kids. squeamish. Actually, it's not that bloody.
1: Um, there you go. Pretty much everybody, go watch The Haunting of Hill House, and I'll be checking it out too because, unfortunately, I haven't seen it yet, and uh, it sounds pretty interesting.
0: Uh, but you did see...
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Another film you did see. Uh, we both watched. Come as you are, released in 2019, directed by Richard Wong, written by Eric linthurst It is the story about three young men, all of them people with disabilities, who take a journey up north to Canada, where they have heard about a brothel that caters specifically to people with disabilities, for the intents of losing their virginity.
1: That's right, Nick. As human beings, we all have needs. And some people have a harder time meeting those needs than others. So, what I'm trying to say is, everybody's got a virginity, and everybody's trying to lose it.
0: Everybody? Everybody, though,
1: I'm pretty sure, come as you are.
0: What would you say your more general thoughts in the movie are? Like, as a whole, what did you think of the film?
1: So, I liked it. I liked it. Um, I actually thought it was pretty heartwarming. I didn't think... I think the movie thought it was funnier than it actually is, but it wasn't a super de- a super huge detriment to the movie at the end of it it was enjoyable it was wholesome and um it was fun it was heartwarming i think what about you nick what what do you think about it
0: i would i would agree uh like i would like from from my own viewing i felt like the first half the time it takes to introduce its characters introduce its lot uh is very kind of like a mixed bag of hijinks that aren't really there for any given purpose other than to just create obstacles for the characters whereas that second half of the story is where it really starts to get into more deeper touches like if you look at uh like the most uh the closest comparison that i would make for this film is american pie also another movie about Several young men who are trying to use their, lose their virginity, um, but well, like the crux uh, an of apt, American Pie uh,
1: comparison, yeah.
0: Like the crux of American Pie is their hijinks. The point of American Pie is their hijinks, and then at the end, it kind of gets this neat little resolution where you're like, well, where each character kind of goes about it in a different manner. But the point of American Pie is to see them go, these guys go about different stupid things in order to try to lose their virginity. Whereas, like this movie has a very clear cut case where it wants to move its characters from point A to point B. And those hijinks are unrelated uh, to everything that comes after. And now everything that comes after is much heavier than anything that American Pie ever reaches. It's much more emotional. There's much more depth to what it is actually asking about what it means to be human, what it means to be uh, somebody that desires a, a sexual relationship.
1: Yeah, in American Pie, it was very much um, kind of a... more of a milestone thing, a coming-of-age a coming of age story. Whereas in this movie, in Come As You Are, it's more of... um a journey, an empathy journey of a perspective that not a lot of people have. Um but to know that there are people out there with this struggle of just trying to find almost essentially a basic human connection um because a lot of society has uh, has kind of has disregarded them um is 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 way is more touching, is deeper and kind of more important of a story uh, to tackle than anything, yeah, American Pie could have done. Obviously, that was a movie for the masses to, you know, make as much money as possible. But to then take that kind of same, I, I guess I don't want to call it the same structure, but that kind of maybe entrance point, entry point, to then unfold um, the lives of three uh, differently able and unique people and watch their struggle and how they have to cope with everyday life is very interesting and eye-opening. Although, like
0: for me, I almost feel like there could have been more time spent in regards to, fig- to seeing these characters, uh, who they are, and uh, who they fun- how they function with their uh, disability. like Towards the beginning of the movie, you spend a lot of time with Scotty, uh, more or less the main character, who is this uh, paraplegic uh, who can only move uh, his hand and his head.
1: Yeah, right? he's yeah, he's essentially like if you think of uh almost Christopher Reeves um he's a quadriplegic. Quadriplegic.
0: Um okay, sorry. Mm-hmm. Uh then you have Mo Yes, you have Mo who is blind. And then you have Matt uh who is bound to a wheelchair, though it's not necessarily explained what or why. There's uh, there are hints and as to like what actually happens to him, yeah. But that that's not necessarily important to this discussion at the moment. Uh, what's more important is that like where Scotty gets the majority of that story development, uh, Matt gets a little bit less, and Mo gets almost nothing at all. Yeah, he's almost. just kind of there. Uh, so. Like a lot of the intro to the movie is spent setting up uh, Scotty and Mo as friends. Scotty and Mo's rivalry, or Scotty's rivalry with Matt, that yeah, is resolved yeah. immediately. Uh, Matt's girlfriend the who shows up and disappears immediately. One scene, like it—it it, it just takes one scene for her to go. We're covering so it's like, a lot even of ground have her in the first place. <laughs> well, and the thing is, like, none of these, I would say none of this ground is spoiler territory because no. none of it really matters.
1: And a lot of it's in the first like, half, if not the first act of the movie.
0: It's, it's the less important side of the movie. Uh, whereas, like, it feels as though that first half could have been much more refined, much more better developed. Yeah. And I think that's kind of where I'm coming from as, like, somebody who examines films more towards its narrative sense in that its narrative isn't quite as developed.
1: And I think you're right. it, it gets I to f-
0: where it wants to go.
1: I I definitely felt what you're talking about here where there... I mean, there was kind of a point, but there were a lot of these hijinks that were kind of there just to be like, wah, wah, isn't that funny? Um... But then there were a lot also of them a good were chunk very of them. Obvious
0: hijinks. Yeah,
1: yes. But I I, I also think a lot of the uh, uh s- s- most of them were there to show you the struggle of a handicapped person, someone who is utterly able and the struggles that they go through. Although in order to keep the movie lighthearted and fun, they try to make a lot of those jokes and in making a lot that's of that's where you jokes, get to the problems yeah they also add almost like filler in terms of like oh can't do it cause I'm in a wheelchair or oh can't do it cause I don't have use of my arms and it's like it, calling attention to this is what it's like to live in this body as this person in this world that doesn't cater to me, but also uh, some of it is just being like, "Isn't that f- uh, funny?" quote unquote. I mean, humor tends to be other people's pain, so sure. But uh, I do think the movie brought, does uh, make do a really good job of staying lighthearted and not becoming this overly heavy drama that makes people really sad about uh three disabled people, you know? Um, so in that I think maybe they were fighting that and in fighting that they just went a little overboard just to play it safe. But yes, in the first half of the movie there I don't know, it's kind of more of a weaker script, uh weaker motivations for why some jokes are executed um but all in all i think it you know i think it is a heartwarming story that um that brings a subject to the forefront that maybe people wouldn't necessarily be thinking about or be comfortable talking about or might not even know how to approach is you know, accessibility for disabled citizens, people, disabled people. I don't know. <laughs>
0: Sorry. Um, I'm not going to hold you to any regard. We cannot expect to discuss uh, things that might be harder for us to talk about if we do not try.
1: I like but that, yes.
0: I feel as though the emotional core of the movie relates less to to who they are uh as like as people with disabilities and more about what does it mean what does sex mean what does love mean what does relate what does a relationship mean to the individual person um and that's kind of where the film eventually goes it doesn't necessarily start there uh because it's kind of like setting you up on the idea that hey. Let's go to this brothel and have sex. And it'll,
1: great. Actually, Nick, if you want to discuss where it does start, it does start uh, with a, an adolescent man having morning wood, and his mother, also known as Jean Garofalo, walking in, not batting an eye, picking him up, putting him in the bathtub, and then. Scrubbing his genitalia because once again, our main character cannot move his arms. Um, and there but is, but I
0: think that's kind of like what sets up Scotty as, uh, as a character who you know who he is, you know what he has to deal with, uh, day in and day out better than you know necessarily Matt or Mo because you see him uh, on his daily activities, you see him with his caregivers. You see him at home at the clinic.
1: Yeah, and he and for all intents and purposes has it the roughest. He is the quadriplegic. Matt is the paraplegic. Um Mo ha uh, is blind. He's I don't know if he's fully blind or partially blind or but he only le- he's legally blind. Um so it doesn't really matter. But um Scotty has essentially the raw quote-unquote the rawest deal you know he has to deal with there's a a few scenes where he wants to make a toast and the person next to him has to lift his glass for him and he has to signal for that he has to tell them lift my glass i want to make a toast um so once again it's just the uh movie putting you in their shoes but that's also yeah but that's also,
0: I think, uh, something that works for the movie as well, because you can see the development of the characters as the movie goes on, based on how they interact with each other. You can see how these characters are based on like how they r- learn to live with each other, and that also makes for that more meaningful second half.
1: Mhm. The yeah, the movie has a tough job of of really I mean, I guess it's not crazier than any sci-fi movie you've ever seen, but um it it does have a job to do in terms of you have to get into their world, understand their struggles, know and sympathize what they're going through before you can get to kind of the more emotional nuggety center, the richer um story on the inside um but at like and the story does eventually pick up
0: uh but would you what were your thoughts in regards to the more technical aspects
1: of the film um so a lot of this movie didn't have anything that was crazy technical um they spent most of their time inside which um I guess it's just studios or sets. Um a good chunk of the movie they're in a car which could be green screen or it could just be them uh on a hitch. Um and then yeah, I don't know. There's no exotic locations, there's no crazy camera movements. There's um no Probably the most big camera work
0: I think that was done was uh in Chicago on the bridge. Uh, was their big like they, they had a very specific shot they wanted to do, um, and the beach scene, but we don't want to get too deep into that. But like that Chicago bridge scene, they were like, We need to have it at this time of night with this month with the, with the, chi- the lights out in the background.
1: Oh, yeah. Oh, there's a scene that for some reason they decided to get a Chicago. Film permit, pay for that thing, get a whole bunch of crew, and put them right in the middle of Whacker. Um, get on a bridge and just film a scene there. So, uh, but I, but I believe uh one of the reasons that we watched the movie, uh, you were
0: telling me something about the making of the film. Uh, it was uh blacklisted and the Chicago
1: yeah absolutely media group was it it's the um i have it written down here yeah so come as you are is actually produced by a production company called chicago media angels in association with the blacklist and uh if you don't know about the blacklist it's a super interesting um group that basically takes scripts that circulate Hollywood but don't get made due to I don't know studio interest or not being super viable for a large national demographic and um they get on this list called the blacklist and then because they're interesting because people read them script readers from different studios read them and they say they acknowledge that they're well written and interesting stories but um the execs won't necessarily greenlight them. Chicago Media Angels is a Chicago-based production company that helped fund this movie and that is why they are in the middle of Wacker Drive on like the LaSalle Street Bridge showing the beautiful uh cityscape th- that is Chicago um basically at sunset. Um, And it is one of the more beautiful shots that you see in the film, but it's very out of character. I think um, Matt, the paraplegic, is actually talking to a character we've never been introduced to in a location we've never seen or referenced. Um, And it's kind of just put there, I think, to, you know, represent. (laughs) Got to represent Chicago. Got to represent, and you know, I love the city as much as anybody, but I think you would agree, Nick, that um, the shots are supposed to be in service of the story, (laughs) not in service of the production company.
0: Correct. Like, uh, if uh, they were actually taking a journey north, would they stop in downtown Chicago with a medical van? Like, where would they even find parking? but i i suppose that's Especially going beyond the point you could almost argue all cinema is a little bit of a contrivance like and sometimes the entire idea of getting characters from point a to point b we could ju- we, we you just have to accept that they found parking and they decided yes it was it's a good idea to go night drinking in the middle of the city
1: yeah but that's and so that that's just that's one of the more I mean, you can tell they really tried with that shot. I mean, it looks amazing, but once again, it's, like, kind of out of nowhere. Um, yeah.
0: Like, why are we out there? Why are we spending time with this character who you know is not going to show up in the next scene?
1: Exactly. But then to get back on kind of the story or the heart of the movie... um, Well, let's get past the first half that was a little weaker and there was a whole bunch of just kind of getting past a bunch of stuff to um, kind of the more poignant, important, interesting, and honest parts of the story. Um, It's a very diverse cast, and they seem to try to tackle a lot in terms of just... I guess acceptance is a good way of putting it. Um, the, there is a kind of um what do you call it? A love, there's a love story between Mo and the van driver because none of them can drive. Sam, played by Gabori Sidi, Sidibe, Sidibe, Gabori Sidibe, um, of
0: uh, precious fame
1: okay so that is precious I was wondering um, and uh, there, uh, there's a connection there she's kind of a bigger girl um, and it, later we find out she has diabetes uh, so she has kind of her own struggles to deal with but though that plot element also doesn't go anywhere you know, there you go. There's that half and half we were talking about. Um, but it's nice that um, I think Moe is so kind of timid about the whole brothel thing that he, he, I mean, he very much outwardly prefers a more natural, intimate connection, um, whereas Scotty is just doing it kind of for the... For the American pie reason of, oh, I gotta get laid because I'm a, you know, crossing this age threshold and it's what's societally expected of me. Where then, uh, the Matt character, he kind of has no problems getting with girls, but he does have that one scene with his girlfriend that only lasts one scene where you find out he has a girlfriend and by the end of it, he no longer has a girlfriend. Um. He doesn't necessarily have a problem attracting women, but he does have a problem closing the deal, let's say, just because, you know, he has some medical issues and he, he's <laughs> the uh, old soldier isn't as reliable as he would like him to be. And, you know, the, those are all things that they have to deal with and talk about and be honest with their partners about. Um And so that's a lot of the reason why I like the movie, because it seems there's just a lot of heart, you know, you, uh, you sympathize with these characters, you empathize with them and you just, you want the best for them because they haven't done anything wrong. They don't necessarily deserve this, not to say that it's a punishment and it's a terrible way to live, but... You know, they long for more and you want them to be happy.
0: Well, I would also, I would also agree that, uh, like by the end of the movie, like even though it started off poorly, by the end of the movie, I did care about all the characters involved. I actually cared about who they were, not necessarily like even if their initial plan to go up to a brothel and get laid went on its own. Unique uh, set of events, and it had its own ending that may not be quite at the same place that they were expecting to be. Mm. Um, I do feel that by the end of the movie, I actually did care about their plight, who they were, um, and that was. And I feel that's what makes the film affect. It may not make the film yeah. uh, as perfect as it could be, but it definitely makes the film effective.
1: Yeah, uh, by the end of it, I think everyone's humanized and everyone's motivations are very real. And the motivations aren't necessarily to just have sex, lose your virginity, get laid, whatever it is. The motivation is can these people ever find a real connection, a real relationship? And they all struggle with that. And I think, in a way, Scotty and Matt kind of find it together. You know, they find it with each other, with their parents. Um, Something that we haven't quite touched on is uh, communicating how they went on this trip. Um, These guys don't necessarily get permission to hire a driver and go to, where was it, Vancouver, and, um you know, go to a brothel. Um, uh, Matt has these very... Though you could
0: say that also kind of sets up, that is what sets up the hijinks. A, a lot of the early, uh, the 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 first half of the hijinks in the movie result from them trying to keep this from their parents.
1: Yeah, and there's almost a non-payoff when, well... Maybe I shouldn't go that far into it. But, um. But, but you
0: can basically say it doesn't really pay off that much. It's only. Because by the end of the. By the time it does kind of sort of pay off, is we get to that emotional heart of the movie where the initial problem doesn't seem to be as meaningful as it was.
1: Exactly. So at that point. Yeah, exactly. And so the way they, these guys do it is they've. I mean, they've all saved their money here and there. um, And they Scotty convinces Matt that this is a good idea. They both convince Mo that this is a good idea. They hire a driver. At first, they don't tell her what they're doing because there is shame. There's shame and shame involved in, Hey, we're trying to, you know, have sex. It's a thing that's very hard for us to go about normally um but this p- facility has you know considers us um eventually the driver finds well, out and she's all right with it she's like okay i don't think that's weird at all i think that's you know natural and something that uh y- you know you're kind of entitled to
0: although you can also say that's uh that's a subject that's a little bit uh that's just kind of like a small part of bigger Uh, idea the idea that like there are certain people that you can't really discuss the entire idea of having a sexual relationship with like nobody like you you're almost society almost shames you into hiding what you want
1: yeah so one of the big things that the movie kind of um tries to tell you is Uh, comes in the package of the parents so the parents are always there for them in terms of support what they need physically kind of emotionally but there is a distance between the uh, the characters and their parents because I think at some point the parents become numb to the struggles of their kid, kind of the way society yeah. becomes numb to the struggles of the handicapped society. Um, All
0: they see is the uh, required needs that uh, caregiving uh, takes care of, the right? Minimum like required needs for them to receive their care, as and less so about like what else does do these people do these characters necessarily want?
1: Exactly. And sometimes what ends up happening is that they can be... A great example is that first opening scene where Janine Garofalo is so attentive to her son's needs that she's literally washing his balls, but at the same time so aloof about what he actually wants and is craving and would... F- like fulfill him in terms of like a partner. Like she's touching him in his private area out of necessity, but he really wants someone to touch him there out of love and intimacy, you know?
0: Though I suppose if I had any final thoughts in regards to the film, um, I would probably say that it this is less about like it starts off with his idea that he feels as though the thing that is missing from his life is sexual contact Mm. but by the time we get to the end of the story what he feels he is missing in his life is personal contact that the personal Uh contact that he has with his friends is more meaningful than the sexual contact uh, that he had with the people, with the lady in the brothel. Yeah. Uh, did you, what would you say your final thoughts, your final thoughts
1: are on the movie? Well, all in all, I thought this was a heartwarming movie. It was good. It was funny. Yes, it could have been better at times. Sometimes the s- script seemed a little weak. Um, but ultimately, it could have been better at times, um, and sometimes the script seemed weak, but it got me thinking about people with disabilities, what they go through, um, their struggle not only externally because of the way society is built and not doesn't cater to them, but then internally, what they could be missing um, in terms of, just happiness and fulfillment and it doesn't beat you over the head with it like a sad deep dark drama it tries to be lighthearted. it tries to stay fun and I think it does a good job accomplishing that yeah it kind of gets into the weeds with a couple extra hijinks that don't really lead anywhere but all in all it got me sympathizing with this community and um, I think made me less afraid to talk about the subject and also kind of excited and willing to, um, learn more and try to help. What about you, Nick? Uh, what do you think of the movie?
0: I I enjoyed it. Um, I think uh, I would probably recommend this movie. Uh, like, I, I feel like we're on the same page for a lot of this, uh, those, the hijinks are kind of just there. Uh, they're more or less meaningless hijinks that they go on to kind of fill in that time. But at its core, it is uh, much more of a, like an emotional drama than you would have expected, but it also kind of maintains its lightheartedness. Like, its, its finale, which I do not want to spoil in any sh- way, shape, or form, is that kind of mixture, where it takes its very, uh, its, uh Heavy, it's a heavier ending, which could have very easily been very dramatic, but it also plays on it in a more lighthearted way. It, it remembers its themes. It remembers what it's trying to do while also being fun at the same time, which is a very, very difficult line to struggle for any filmmaker. Um, and the fact that they were able to cap it off as well as they did uh, means something.
1: Yeah, and I can see why a movie like this would be on the blacklist, where it's an interesting subject matter. It speaks to an underrepresented community and might not be a studio executive's idea of a big blockbuster film, and why the Chicago media angels um, would want to support it, you know, and give it wings, <laughs> as it were. Let's see So go see So go see come as you are." It's I saw it on Amazon. it's on Amazon Prime. I think it was 499. you could to rent it and uh, you know, I, I think it's worth taking a look at.
0: It is this specific season that has enveloped us. A uh, specific season of holidays, mm-hmm. which I feel makes it very um, notable that we could perhaps also recommend some more seasonal flicks mm-hmm. to gaze upon during this holiday season mm-hmm. while you are in your home, unable to go out to movie theaters because they are mm-hmm. all closed.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Alistair, mm-hmm. do you have any recommendations for a holiday film
1: holiday films holiday films mm well uh i always love recommending that futurama episode um where santa tries to kill the crew because they ended up celebrating xmas but beyond that i do have a childhood favorite um I don't typically like these Christmas movies, stop motion, classic 1960s or whatever um movies that look all creepy and weird. Um I'm not a huge fan of the repetitive music that you hear every single year for your whole life, but there is one movie. Olive. What the is other that reindeer. movie? Um should I say that I, again? I
0: can't say I've actually heard of Olive the, Olive, Olive the other reindeer. Okay.
1: Uh what is that? Well, uh it stars Drew Barrymore as a little cartoon animated dog named Olive and she hears a little news uh, bulletin on the radio where dear old saint nicholas says that he's gonna have a tough christmas this year and he's gonna need all of the other reindeer to come help uh pull his sleigh something to that effect and olive hears this and she i guess mishears and she's like oh did he say that he santa needs olive The other reindeer, and being such a huge fan of Christmas, she strongly believes that she is a reindeer. She really wants to be a reindeer, that one day she'll help Santa pull his sleigh. She takes this opportunity to get to the North Pole, and there is a, uh, I mean, just adorable hijinks ensues. There's a penguin postal service man. Just Just imagine a little penguin in a in a mailman outfit and my goodness it's just i highly recommend all of the other reindeer beautifully animated film drew barrymore so fun so cute what about you nick what crappy christmas recommendation do you have for us
0: i offer you no christmas recommendations this year instead I present you with a New Year's movie to watch. Ooh. Which, uh, it, it's, it's, it's something you don't necessarily think about too often. Like, what would be a New Year's movie? And thusly, I had rediscovered that Four Rooms uh, was a New Year's movie. I had forgotten that that story actually does take place on New Year's night. Oh. About a bellhop played by Tim Roth. As he makes his way between four uh individual separate stories taking place on that one uh distinct new year's night uh each story uh presented by a different writer different director the fir- like uh the first story it's all right it's not uh, it's it's nothing special mm-hmm. the second story is pretty good um in which like the bellhop has found himself uh, stuck between these two lovers who are having a very, very strange evening. But mm. it's the third and the fourth stories in the Four Rooms that take the cake, with the third one direct, uh, written and uh, directed by Robert Rodriguez and the fourth one written and directed by Quentin Tarantino. Both of them are at the top of their game with that second half of Four Rooms. And so, if you're gonna watch anything this New Year's, um, don't watch a movie that has a very specific thing happen at midnight. Watch <laughs>
1: Four Rooms. Nice, and, and you know, Four Rooms a classic, especially for film buffs. If you're looking for that Tarantino gold that uh Robert Rodriguez. Goal. Now you say he's at the top of his game. I'm not sure. I'm not the biggest fan of Robert Rodriguez. I think he did amazing things with um uh what was it? The Mexican and Once Upon a Time in Mexico, but um um
0: I would say like Desperado though was better than Once Upon a Time in Mexico.
1: Yes, I did like Desperado a lot. Um but Spy Kids 4D, come on. <laughs> uh, uh, but yeah four rooms highly recommended um, one of Tarantino's kind of like uh, f- very first movies you know I think the reason that there are four stories is because these directors didn't have enough money to make one movie um, themselves so you know it's kind of a student film kind of thing Um to all get together and do this kind of like a little segmented, segmented movie with a through line. But yeah, I didn't realize that was a new year's movie. Um, That's i I'm going to have to rewatch that on new year's
0: or earlier. Anytime is a good time to watch it. Even (laughs) right now. Stop listening to us right now.
1: Don't do that. (laughs) um or i guess you could because nick i think with that we've come to the end of another conversation about movies and i hope you come back next time for another
0: conversation on movies